I have some symbols of success at my house, and maybe you can think of some that are yours. I think we all have these, and we all have pictures on our wall of our family. Maybe your kids are grown and raised, and you have grandkids, and you have this incredible fruit to show for all of your labor, uh, or maybe like a high school diploma, or a degree, or a certificate of some kind. Most of us have some type of uh, simple of success like that. Uh, if you're like my dad, my dad uh, was an athlete, still is an athlete. I mean, he's pretty nimble. Uh, so he's got some trophies, especially like if you were alive in the 70s, you know, bowling was a, was a thing. He's got, some, uh, he's got some trophies. Maybe you have like some medals. Maybe you ran Bloomsday at one point, so you got the t-shirt. Symbols of success. Some people have way cooler symbols than the rest of us. They have like maybe a classic car or like an exotic car. For some people, even like their house is a symbol of their success. Uh, for some people, kind of a more modern thing, some people like post pictures of their kids looking awesome on the first day of school, right? <laughs> Symbols of success, or uh, maybe when you're younger, we do this at our house. Uh, our refrigerator, literally, I'm surprised it hasn't like gone and tipped over forward because there's so many refrigerator papers on it, right? The teacher puts a smiley face or a good job at the top. Symbols of success. But you know what nobody ever puts on their fridge? Nobody ever puts a symbol of failure on their fridge. We don't. Maybe you do. Uh, we, we don't put our kids' symbols of failure on there either, but nobody puts a, a, like a certificate of divorce or bankruptcy or like a pink slip from the job you lost. You know? Nobody puts those kinds of things on their fridge. Uh, my dad doesn't have a trophy of a guy fumbling a football. Uh, symbols of failure we don't, we don't like very much. Nobody posts a picture of their kid like picking a booger on the first day of school. Uh, somebody probably has, but most of us wouldn't do that. Uh, nobody puts up like the failed test on the refrigerator. You know, nobody puts like their 20-year-old mugshot hanging up in their mirror. You know, hanging up in their living room. We don't. We don't do that, right? We all we try to make a big deal about our success. We try to minimize or hide. Maybe you know, it sounds. When I say hide. It implies like cover up, but we try to minimize the significance of our failures and really display the things, the ways that we've succeeded. But this is what I found in my life. I find it ironic that even though I make such a big deal and try to promote my successes, it's my failures that speak to me. It's the ways I haven't succeeded that play back in my mind. Uh, I almost envy the delirious few who just think they're awesome. <laughs> you, know, you know those people who are just oblivious to the ways that they've failed and the rest of us are like, how can you not see that? Uh, I, I sort of envy those people in a way. Uh, but over time, what happens with our failures is we try to cover them up, and I'm not even saying it's good or bad, I'm just saying it's normal. I do it, you probably do it, and what ends up happening is that we kind of have a tendency to pile shame on top of our failure. You know, the failure becomes uh, something that we've, we've held it in for so long that the persona we built up is not, not really congruent with what's actually on the inside anymore. And chances are, everybody here has had something in their past that uh, if the rest of us knew about it, you'd be somewhere on the spectrum between a little bit embarrassed and totally ashamed. Probably a whole lot of things in your past. I know I do. Uh, and uh, here's, it's funny because nobody thinks they're perfect, right? You, you don't think you're perfect. I don't think I'm perfect. Only the most delusional person would actually think that they're perfect. None of us really even pretends to be perfect. But we have a tendency to kind of hold back some of our failures so that the outside will, will look a little bit better. And if you've done that, me too. Because I don't like to be embarrassed. I don't like pain. I want people to think well of me. I think you do too. And uh, you're not alone. 
We're all in that same boat. But the thing about failure, where it becomes really problematic, is that it often has the loudest voice in the world. No matter what's happening in our lives, there are times when the ways we've not succeeded, the things we wish we could do over again, they just speak louder than everything else. And we see evidence of this. Uh, you might have noticed statistically, people who were uh, former inmates, they have a tendency, statistically, to reoffend once they're out. Uh, addicts have a tendency, statistically, to return. People who've struggled have unfortunately gone through a divorce. Statistically, a lot of those people go through multiple divorces. And I think part of the reason is because over time, we allow our failures to define us. We feel trapped in a cycle. Uh, maybe people around us know that we're more than just our failures, but sometimes they speak to us so loud. That's why people who are born poor, statistically, tend to stay in the same socioeconomic bracket. Uh, things like domestic abuse, alcoholism, they tend to be generational. I mean, these are things that you're probably already aware of. We have a tendency to just repeat our biggest mistakes and even identify ourselves with those failures. I've felt the weight of that. Probably you have too. But Jesus has a different message. And I think for those of us who know him, we have this great opportunity to share this different message that Jesus has. Jesus has a different outcome in mind for you and I than just being trapped under the weight of our failures. And so I just want to read these few verses from Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul has been talking about, uh, writing to the church at Rome, and he's been talking about God's grace, how we're saved by grace. In fact, the entire book of Romans is basically just grace. That's what it's about. Uh, and, uh, and this is what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It would be familiar to many of you. He says, well then, since we have this incredible grace, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we also joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. We also may live new lives. Uh, it's interesting, I think it's pretty, uh, it's fairly easy for me to get on board with all of it right up to the we may live new lives part, because that implies that I, I have the opportunity to leave some of this other stuff behind, uh, but for whatever reason, sometimes our failure just has its claws in us, you know? The, the leading a new life part is, is a little bit harder than it sounds, but one thing that's clear in this verse is that God doesn't want you to be defined by your sins. God doesn't want you to be defined by your past mistakes. God doesn't want the people you love who are struggling right now, maybe in this moment even, in a bad, bad spot, God doesn't want them to be defined by what they're going through right now. That's not what he has for us. He wants you, he wants them, he wants me to have a new life in Christ. That's his offer to us. Jesus has washed away our sin, and now we can have a new life, being renewed as if we'd never sinned before. Consider this verse. Galatians 3, 26, uh, might be familiar to you. It says, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. I like the, uh, the verbiage there. Think how strange it would be to just stay in dirty, like torn up, smelly, old, unsightly clothes while holding brand new, clean, 
attractive clothes. Like, that would just be a weird thing. None of us would, would stay in the old when we have the new right in front of us. But when we continue on living life apart from God, drifting wherever life takes us, that's essentially what we're doing. So no wonder that we become defined by our failures. No wonder the, the voice of failure screams so loud at us. I love the analogy of being clothed, because when we're apart from Christ, we're still in those old clothes. So think if you saw somebody who was, uh, who was obviously just very unkempt on the outside, that's the thing you would notice. They would probably feel the weight of that. And that's what he says essentially happens to us apart from, from Christ. So we've been going through this series, finding your way back to God, examining this parable of the lost son. And uh, we've been examining these five awakenings, these five com- really common awakenings that, that happen in our lives and they awaken us to our need for God. They're God's mechanisms for drawing us back to him. So if you're here on Easter, which, which most of you were, you might remember the first one was the awakening to longing. The sense that we all have that there's got to be something significant about this life. There has, to be, there has to be something more than just being into in the machine. We have these longings that, that drive us to pursue things like purpose, pursue things like love, relationships, pursue things like meaning. And in the story, we see this young man who feels these needs. He has these longings. And so what he does is he tells his father, you know what, just give me my inheritance now while I'm young so I can go out and pursue the things I want to pursue, so I can go out and follow these longings to, to, uh, to an end. And that longing takes him to some pretty crazy places. Uh, the phrase in the scripture that most translations use is uh, wild living. He pursues his desires in wild living, which literally means uh, he threw morality completely to the wind and just did whatever was on his mind and in his heart in the moment. And it makes a mess of his life. The pursuit of those longings eventually leads him to awakening number two, which was awakening to regret. He gets in the spot where he thinks, man, I wish I, wish I could start this over again. You ever been there? I wish, uh, I wish I could make a different choice. You know, somewhere in the chain of events that have led to most of our most significant failures in life, there was a moment where if we had chosen something differently, the whole situation would have ended up completely different. The regret could have been avoided. And we think, man, if right there in that moment I'd chosen something else, this could all have ended differently. And that's where he gets to. I wish I could go back and do that over again. I I wouldn't have gone down that path if I just had more self-control in that moment. And a lot of us get trapped in this space between the two longings. Uh, We have a longing, and, uh, and we try to fulfill it in unhealthy ways, which leads us to a place of regret, where we have longings again. And we pursue those in unhealthy ways, and then we end up regretting it. But then awakening three that we talked about last week really was the window of opportunity God has provided to escape, to escape from that cycle. And that was the awakening to help, the awakening to God's help, being able to say, I can't do this on my own. And you might remember I, um, I said, hey, let's all say that out loud. I can't do this on my own. One, two, three. And about 60% of the people said it. And I thought, well, okay, apparently it is really hard to say I can't do this on my own. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to admit when we're in a spot of weakness. I think, I think we can all connect to that idea. But maybe the greatest deception a person could ever live under is the idea that I'm fine. I don't need help. Because when I get to the place where uh, I'm just fine, I don't need any help, then I'm in no danger of ever learning how to trust God. 
I'm not in a spot where I have to have be dependent on God in any way as long as I feel like I'm fine. It's not a position that, that God wants us to be in. So uh, since it's Bloomsday, I'm about to say the craziest thing I've ever said into a microphone. That's about, that's about to happen right now. Uh, so yeah, I thought that might perk a few of you up. I thought that might get your attention. Uh, Justin Bieber said something in an interview uh, a while back that actually really made sense, and I'm going to quote it. I'm going to read it to you. If you're a pop culture buff, which I know you all are, uh, you may or may not be aware that uh, Justin Bieber's gone through a pretty tumultuous adolescence, young adulthood, and he's been having sort of this uh, weird crisis that we see a lot of celebrities have, where they have everything in the world, they have every opportunity in the world, and uh, especially when it seems to come to them really young, uh, they go through this weird phase where they can't be satisfied and they just chase down all these wild things and they're all over the news and you're like, what is wrong with that person? But they just can't reach this place of being okay. And over the last year or so, in his case, uh, it's actually forced him to kind of take a few steps a little bit closer to God. It's been uh, kind of a cool thing to watch. We'll see where it leads. But, uh, but I want to read from this interview he did with um, a, a blog called Paradox. He said, all this healing that you're trying to do, it's unnecessary. We have the greatest healer of all, and his name is Jesus Christ. And then he made this ridiculous metaphor about a girlfriend that I'm not going to read. I'm just going to move on down past it. <laughs> he said, if we can understand that we're all imperfect, let's come to God and come for his help. You're not weak by doing that. I think that's a common misperception of Christians, that you're weak because you can't handle it. None of us can handle this world, dude. It's eating us alive. Dude, I agree. But man, I don't want to have to do it on my own. I know for sure my parents can't give me all that I need. I know that my friends can't give me all that I need. There's something missing. Dude, I agree with the Biebs for once. None of us can handle it, dude. When the younger son in the story gets to kind of a similar spot, because he's got everything he could possibly want, he becomes desperate, and he realizes his need for help it's actually that realization that he needs help, that's what turned him toward home. Just the simple realization that I need, I need help in this situation. And it's when we reach out for God's help in a situation that we find a loving father. And that's what this younger son found. He reached out for his father's help, who was, and he found a loving father who was just waiting for him to return. I think it's easy for people, so easy for people to get in a spot where they're like, Man, if I, if I try to like reach out to God or try to get my life back in order, there's going to be all this judgment from people. People are going to be like, what's that guy doing here? My mom's going to say, I told you so. God probably doesn't want me anyway. I can't even tell you how many people I've heard say, oh, if I went to church, I'd burst into flames. Like, where did you even get that idea? Like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Well, we see this younger son, and it's the moment where he says, I need help. And he reaches out to his father that becomes the turning point. It actually brings him back to awakening number four, which is awakening to love. The realization that in spite of our missteps, in spite of your missteps, in spite of the mistakes that have defined you, God really does love you deeply after all. That's a real thing. That's, that's not made up. It's not pastor speak. Um, it's not wishful thinking. It's a real thing. And in Jesus' day, there was this group of really religious people who thought, of course God loves me. I'm awesome. I'm a lovable person. I tithe. I barely swear. Uh, my kids go to bed at the same time every night. I get up early and read my Bible. Of course God loves me. But when Jesus is telling this particular parable, 
He's not talking to that group of people. They're not, they're not there. He's talking to the broken. He's talking to the discouraged. They're identified as the sinners. Uh, wow, how about that as a label? Talk about being defined by your failures. That's who he's talking to. He's a, talking to a group of people who wouldn't have said, of course God loves me. He's talking to a group of people who might have said, really? God, God loves me? But I'm, I'm a mess. Like, I'd probably burst into flames if I went to temple right now. That's the people he's talking to. And I'm praying that in this church, today, next week, throughout the days as we go about our business in the city, as people who are part of this church family go to work, go to school, go about their neighborhood, that we'll take that opportunity to other people to understand that God really does love me deeply after all. And that's, that's what Jesus is driving at. He identifies God as a God who loves misfits, a God who has compassion for the broken and the discouraged. So last week we talked about this younger son and how he returned home and how he, as he returned, he found a father who was watching for him, hoping for his return. And when he sees his son approaching, he hikes up his robe and he starts running to his son. And we talked about how that would have been totally taboo in their day and how the father actually by doing that was deflecting the shame away from his son and taking it upon himself. And he runs to his son and he embraces him and he welcomes him home. But today I just want to talk about how the son responded to that. Luke chapter 15, verse 21, the father has embraced the son and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What an interesting thing to say to someone who has embraced you and welcomed you home. He finds his father who has mercy, who has compassion for him. And the son, here he is, being embraced, and yet he's still buried in his shame. He's, um, he's, he's being held onto. It's like his shame has just followed him home. You ever felt the weight of that? That mistake you had is just, like, it's just there still. Years have gone by. It's just following me around. And it seems that he just piled shame upon shame upon shame upon his failure. And now that shame has just got its claws into him. And that's how shame works. It follows us home. It will define us given the opportunity. So the son is convinced, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he would be right. He's not worthy. If you were here for the conversation last week, you'll remember, like, there was this whole, this whole process, this whole uh, festival, if you will, uh, this official ceremony for cutting off this son who had rejected his father, rejected his community, rejected his faith, and he's not worthy. There's nothing he could do to put everything back the way it was before. He's not worthy except for one small detail. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But it's actually not up to him to decide if he's worthy to be called his son. It's up to the father. The father makes the decision about whether or not he's going to call this son son or not. It's not dependent on whether or not he's worthy. It's dependent or not on whether the father, it's dependent on whether or not the father will allow him to return. And that's how shame works. Shame tells you who you were. Shame tells you you're not worthy. And based on the ugliness of my heart and probably yours, shame might be right. Shame might be right, but it's not up to shame to decide whether or not you're worthy to be called God's son or God's daughter. It's not up to shame to decide whether or not that person you have befriended or you care about who's struggling. It's, 
it's not up to shame to decide whether or not they get to come to God. Shame finds all kinds of reasons to disqualify us. And shame would be right, except for one thing. Jesus is a qualifier. Jesus didn't need to come to disqualify anybody. We've done that successfully on our own. Jesus is the qualifier. And I think the thing that I would want to share with each of us is, you know, especially those of us who are Christ followers, um, we can all easily slip into sort of a moral code version of Christianity. Um, you know, I, I don't think any of us is probably in danger of becoming the sinner and the tax collector. We're much more in danger of becoming like the Pharisee. That's, that's our reality. I mean, that's where, that's where Satan's going to deceive us. He's going to make us judgmental. Um, and you know what? We might have slipped into that before. We might have looked at other people and thought, for whatever reason, I'm better than you. But you know what? That's, that's a pretty ugly thing for me to think. But Jesus qualified me too. Jesus died for that sin just as much as he did for the other group of sinners. And so I think I want to uh, encourage you to have grace for yourself because God's got an awful lot of it for you. Um, just this uh, situation that happened to me a few years ago, I'll just share this story with you. I used to work, I used to do some work for a, like a major golf club manufacturer, most of you, most of you probably knew that. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time at like the private country clubs around Seattle. And you know, it's a totally different world over there, right? Because if you make like this much money in Spokane, you're rich. Um, but you're like really average in Seattle if you make the, that same amount of money. And uh, it's a totally different, uh, totally different environment. And so this one particular club that I went to uh, several times, I had a really good conversation with one of the members there. And, and uh, he actually invited me to come back on another day and play golf with him. And um, so I had seen him a few times. We kind of got to know each other. And so I called him up and, and I was like, hey, can you do it this day? And he's like, yeah, me and my friend play pretty much every day. So, uh, so come on out. And uh, so on this other day, I, I decided to go back to this club that I'd been to several times before. Um, I knew so a lot of the staff and some of the members. I'd been there for work several times. But, but this time, because I wasn't going for work, uh, I drove up to the security gate. This particular club, you had to stop at the guard shack, and they would let you in. Uh, but I started to feel, feel kind of nervous, like, you know, I, I don't belong here, at least not in this context, right? I started to feel kind of strange, and the guard came out, and he came up to my window. Now, if I was a member, uh, he would have just opened the gate. He would have known who I was. Uh, but because I wasn't, he came out to me, and I'm thinking that my 2005 Ford Explorer probably tipped him off. Because <laughs> if you go to a country club in Spokane, what you'll find is like Mercedes and BMWs and the occasional Toyota Camry in the parking lot. But this was like a, uh, more like a Bentley and Ferrari kind of country club, okay, right? So uh, just a different world. So like my 2005 Ford Explorer, which I drove here this morning, was just a little bit below the bar. Uh, so he came out to my car and he asked me my name, which was sort of funny because I'd seen him several times before, but uh, he asked me my name and then he had like an earpiece and a radio and he like says, I have so-and-so here and I couldn't hear what was going on, but, but then the gate, gate opened. And uh, so, so in I went and I just felt so strange going in. Like I just was a fish out of water, I knew I didn't belong there, but, but I drive into this parking spot and I turn my car off and I look over and there's a guy standing right there at my window. How you doing today, Mr. Armstrong? I get out and I open the back of my car and he grabs my golf clubs and puts them on the, on the cart and I get on the cart and we drive up to the front, of the front of the club and I see my friend there. He's there waiting for me and so I get off the cart and then the kid that was driving the cart, he just takes off just with my golf clubs, he's just gone. And uh, so I'm talking to my friend and we're walking down toward the driving range. Of course, he's here almost every day. This is his 
you know, his home. And uh, I'm thinking the whole time, I'm like, where are my golf clubs? <laughs> like, I didn't even know, if, you know, I think we're going to the driving range. I mean, I've been there before, but um, so we get down there and there's this spot that's reserved. It has my golf clubs there, has a little sign in front of it so no one else will get into it. And, uh, and if you go to like a public driving range, you, know, you take the basket, you put the coins in, you wait for all the golf balls to come out, and they spill all over, and you pick them up. And, and, uh, but at this one, they're like perfectly stacked in a pyramid. You just don't even want to touch it. There's like, I don't know, there's got to be probably a thousand golf balls in a pyramid that's like two feet tall. I didn't even want to, I didn't want to hit any golf balls. And uh, it was really odd because the thing that made it strange was I had been here before. Like I knew none of this was a mystery to me. Uh, I mean, I've been in this not only at this club, but in this environment hundreds and hundreds of times. And, but because I was there out of place, uh, it felt strange to me. And uh, I'm, I'm hitting some golf balls, and there's a guy a couple feet down from me. He turns around and says, hey, it's going to be a nice day for golf today. And I look up, and there's this giant person there, and I thought to myself, that's Detlef Shrimp. Any Supersonics fans from the 90s? Anybody remember him? Um, he's like he's like 6'10", kind of a thin build. If you're wondering what that looks like, just picture a giraffe hitting golf balls. That's pretty close. You're you're pretty close. And I was like, yeah, it's beautiful out. Just playing it playing it cool. And uh, it was funny because I was thinking to myself, like, it's actually a little bit disturbing just how luxurious everything here is. Uh, it got it was weird for me. Like, if you go to a normal golf course, you go inside and you can buy like food and everything. And uh, but here, you just go inside and take it. Um, and uh, I went inside, and we got something to eat, and like, I'm just taking it. And I said to my friend, I was like, I, I can pay for this. Like, it's no problem. And he's like, trust me, they're going to get their money for it. The whole thing was really odd uh, for me. And uh, it was really strange because uh, I went there, and I felt super out of place. But then I went back again, and I felt less out of place. And I went back again, and I went back several times and played golf. And eventually, like, I felt normal. Some of the people didn't even know that I wasn't a member after I had been there four or five times. And here I was, allowed on the inside, included. I was, I was becoming part of this circle based completely on the merit of someone else. I, I literally did not, I literally shouldn't be there. I did nothing to deserve it. It was 100% based on the fact that my friend had this really good idea and started a company and then sold it for millions of dollars and he invited me in. He did all the work. I didn't deserve it. And so it is with this younger son. So it is with you and I. Jesus tells this story knowing that very soon, in the very near future, he's going go to go to the cross and pay for the bill for the sins of every person who's listening. None of them has any idea how this is playing out. But he knows full well. He knew that he was going to freely give up his life so that you and I could have a new one. And it wasn't going to come cheap. It's, it's pretty amazing just to think about the fact that we're included as children of God based solely on the merit of another, solely on someone else. So as the son comes home, he's still carrying the burden of his shame, and he's beginning the speech that he's been practicing all the way home. The father calls out in Luke 15, 22, it says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. 
I have a feeling the sun probably felt a little awkward. You know, some people love when people make a big deal about him, but some people are like, oh, don't make a big deal about me. I have to imagine he probably felt a little bit like the Ford Explorer guy at the Ferrari Club. The father calls out, bring the best robe, which probably meant bring my robe, because he probably owned the best robe. He calls out, bring a ring. In that day, that meant restore a position of authority, because who had rings back then? Kings. You, would, you and I would come to the king and we would bow down and kiss his ring. He calls out, bring the sandals. In their day, only family members would wear sandals in the house. The servants would always be barefoot. The father literally clothes the son in acceptance, in forgiveness, reconciliation, blessing. So let's refer back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What an amazing picture. Jesus is actually clothing you in authority, in blessing, in reconciliation. Those who have identified with Christ become followers of Christ. We've also been clothed in acceptance. We've also been clothed in forgiveness, in blessing, in God's favor, in purpose. In Christ you and I are literally reinstated to God's family. And that's the picture that Jesus is making. Because you're the prodigal, I'm the prodigal. The Father obviously is God. You and I are clothed in Christ. So if you've read on in the story, you've read uh, probably that there's also an older son. That's why we call him the, the younger son, the younger son. And the father throws this party for the younger son. And, and there's only one person who we know of that's not a part of the party, and it's the older son. He's bent out of shape because he's been doing the right thing. He's been honoring his father. He's been waiting his turn. He's been working hard. He's been responsible. He's been righteous. And here he is. He's angry because the foolish younger son has gotten a party. He's gotten the fatted calf. He literally says, you haven't even given me a goat. And I think to myself, a goat? Like, that's the thing. That's the thing that you wanted? A goat. He says, I've done everything right, father, but you... You haven't blessed me at all. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you know what the biggest stumbling block for a lot of people is? A lot of people miss out on the party not because of their badness, but because of their goodness or their perceived goodness. I've done everything right. Or at least compared to that person, I've done everything right. I'm a good person. But the Bible tells us that we all have sin. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And a lot of people lose what the Bible calls the joy of salvation because of their goodness. They trade in their joy, the joy of salvation, for self-righteousness. And it's a bad trade. It's a bad exchange. Isaiah used a really descriptive metaphor to describe the joy that comes from knowing God, from being accepted, being forgiven. He said in Isaiah 12, 3, he said, with joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. And I think some of us need to come to God and drink deeply from the fountain of salvation again. Just drink deeply from God's grace. Experience the joy of the fact that God really does love you deeply after all. There's been a lot of talk about baptism today in some of these verses, and uh, you know, I think to the outsider, like, baptism is kind of a weird, could be a really weird deal, right? Like, okay, so you dunk me underwater, and then me and God are good. 
Like, I can totally understand how that would be just really a weird uh, perception. It sounds kind of odd, but, but baptism really is a public demonstration that I'm identifying myself with the death and resurrection of Christ. Clothing ourselves in the new life that God has for us begins with turning toward him. It begins with identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ. And if baptism is something that uh, you need to consider, that you want to consider doing, indicate that on your card. We'll get you the information. We'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, but I'm going to ask Lindsay to come back, and um, she's going to play a song for us at the end. Um, I, think, uh, I think the guys are coming as well. And I just want to close by just taking a few minutes of worship through communion. Uh, Jesus did this thing with his disciples where he gathered them up just before he went to the cross, and he took the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. My body is going to be broken to absorb God's wrath against your sin. And he meant you. He meant me. Scripture tells us that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. It's all-inclusive. And then he took the wine, or the juice in our case, and he said, this represents my blood, which is a form of payment, a currency, if you will, a form of payment for your sin to settle the score. And then he said, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. In some traditions, that means something different. You know, some, some streams of Christianity have very formal observances of communion. And of course, you know, uh, we don't. We have a very casual one. Uh, some traditions have a, uh, a belief system that, uh, that taking, by taking communion, we're actually participating physically in the death of Christ. Uh, some believe that uh, it's purely symbolic. We lean more toward the casual side, but either way, Christ is glorified. Either way, you're taking a moment to say, you know what? I'm identifying myself with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And honestly, it's the most important thing you could do